Hey, Jay, remember that time Magneto was a baby? Vividly, Miles. Uh, that was an alien thing, right? Uh, what's his name? The guy who kidnapped Magneto and Toad? The stranger? No, although he was at least peripherally involved. So who was it that de-aged Magneto? That would have been Mutant Alpha. Mutant... Alpha. Magneto's largely successful attempt to create the ultimate mutant. And the ultimate mutant power was to turn people into babies? I mean, Mutant Alpha was pretty close to omnipotence, so by definition, yeah. Was that part of Magneto's plan? It definitely was not. Xavier convinced Alpha that he should use his own judgment, and Alpha's judgment turned out to be, let's de-age the whole Brotherhood. Huh. The idea was for them to have to grow back up normally, but after a few years, they got rapidly re-aged by... Moira McTaggart? No, no, no. Everybody's favorite bondage viking. Not... Eric the Red. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 235 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to smack dab in the middle of Fatal Attractions. That's right, in this six-part crossover, we are now covering parts three and four, where um some really big stuff happens. Yeah, I feel like this is the part of the crossover that people tend to think of when they think of Fatal Attractions. The surrounding stuff kind of fades into the comparative background. I mean, it makes sense. We have major, major changes being made to two characters on page, and ultimately we'll find out a third character years down the road. Yeah, man, there's there's a lot going on here. So let's do a quick recap and go over what's happened so far in, in this event. Previously on X-Men... Magneto, despite having seemed to have blown up along with Asteroid M at the end of Chris Claremont's run, is, in fact, alive. With his fantastically clad messenger Exodus by his side, Magneto has built an isolationist space station called Avalon. Out of the remains of Grey Malkin, Cable's old orbital base from the future. Now, one group who didn't get the resurrection memo is the Acolytes, a collection of quasi-religious zealots who worship their interpretation of Magneto's cause. That worship mostly involves murdering lots and lots of helpless and hapless humans, which the Acolytes did in Chapter 1 of Fatal Attractions, pissing off Magneto's on-again, off-again son Quicksilver, whom the Acolytes had previously been attempting to recruit. After that, Magneto invited his favorite members of X-Force to leave Earth and join him on Avalon. X-Force mostly skipped out after their tour, thanks largely to the recently returned Cable, who teleported X-Force away and then thoroughly lost a fight with their host. The newly deprogrammed Rusty and Skids, however, decided to stay. They must have missed supervillains with good taste in hats. So now Magneto's turned his attention to the X-Men. Who are not thinking about supervillains at all because they are busily mourning the death of Ilyana Rasputin, the re-de-aged little sister of Colossus who recently died from the legacy virus, a mutant targeting AIDS metaphor. Having also recently lost his brother and parents, Colossus is not doing so hot. And it's only going to get worse for him. Everything is terrible! Let's do this! Alright, so uh, we, are, we are coming in with part three of Fatal Attractions. That is Uncanny X-Men number 304. Titled, For What I Have Done. 
This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by, oh boy, Jay Lee, Chris Browse, Brandon Peterson, Paul Smith, and John Romita Jr., inked by, oh boy again, Terry Austin, Dan Green, Dan Panosian, Tom Palmer, and Keith Williams, and colored by Mike Thomas. Paul Smith, though. Paul Smith, although it's very different Paul Smith work. Maybe that's just the inks, I don't know. It's Paul Smith who is, I feel like, one of the only artists who has ever realistically aged Kitty up. There is that. That's true. So, I always wonder when you have an issue like this with a whole bunch of inkers, or sometimes even pencilers, is that because it's a jam comic that's a special event, or is it because it was running late? I mean, we do know that on Kenny X-Men number 304, which had been planned to come out on the exact 30-year anniversary of X-Men number one, yeah, it, it shipped late. Everything shipped out of order in Fatal Attractions. So, I honestly don't know. I mean, for such a big event, having a bunch of artists on it, that's kind of cool. And I like many of the artists who are here, but it's a weird tonal shift from page to page sometimes, and I don't necessarily know that it works. Yeah, there are artists whose styles very, very much fit the parts of the stories they're telling. And I think this is an issue where having some shift in artists makes sense just because it's about the um, clash of two very, very, very different situations mood-wise. That it is. What it's also about is being a crossover in the 90s, so we, of course, have our crossover in the 90s gimmick. As you may recall from last episode, every issue of Fatal Attractions is double-sized, has a cardstock cover, and has a little hologram sticker thing that looks like a trading card but isn't on the cover, right above a dramatic quote. Not a sticker, they're just glued on. They're, they're little hologram things. Spot holograms? I don't know. One of those. I'm sure there's a term for exactly that. Now, our card this time is, appropriately enough, Magneto, and it's a really, really cool one. Our quote, as usual, is intensely dramatic. An offer of salvation. A betrayal most bitter. Arguably the most awkward X-Men funeral since Angel's. Oh, yeah. Well, Yana doesn't exactly come back as a metal-winged vision of death, although... I guess she's not that far off when she finally returns. Vision of death, at least, she's got down. Yes. Well, anyway, this issue opens up with something much happier and more delightful than the Depression to follow. The Acolytes preparing to beat up Fabian Cortez. Good. He's earned it. He has. Because apparently what's happened is that Exodus, the herald of the recently returned Magneto, has showed up to tell the Acolytes, so you know your messianic figure, like your old boss Magneto, a, he's still alive, and B, the person who tried to kill him in the first place was, yeah, yeah, this ponytailed jerk right here, Fabian Cortez. Yeah, so um, Exodus ultimately tells the Acolytes not to kill Cortez um, and tells Cortez specifically that Magneto says that Cortez should suffer slowly, the victim of someone else's legacy, implying that he has the legacy virus or will contract it, which he absolutely does not. This is never followed up on. No, but for now, Exodus zaps the living hell out of Cortez, and man, he looks like he just gets blown apart. But we are going to see him again really soon in the X-Men Avengers crossover, Blood Ties, which, when we were talking about it before this episode, I do want to point out that, Jay, you referred to as Family Ties, which is a crossover I never thought of and now I can't stop thinking of. I mean, they're basically the same thing, right? Actually, the plots are surprisingly near identical. 
Magneto, for his part, is watching the Earth from Avalon, his isolationist, mutant-only space station. There's actually, like, a no humans allowed sign on the door, like, written with, you know, some of the letters backward. It's very cute. It's it's actually um called Grosh, Get Rid of Slimy Humans. <laughs> I love it. And he narrates to himself that he used to think that maybe Earth could be fixed. Maybe it could be made into the place he always hoped it could be, and humans and mutants could, you know, not be so terrible to each other. And mainly humans couldn't be so terrible, because Magneto thinks mutants are great. But he's given up on that, so now he goes into part of the space station full of dramatically draped blue and orange fabric and Greek busts, and picks up his helmet. And puts it on. Which is sitting on one of the busts, isn't it? Uh, no, it's just sort of on a, it's on an altar. I do like the idea of him keeping his helmet just like on a bust of, I don't know, like Jerry Lewis or Queen Victoria or I don't know. Who has busts? Oh, I would, I would 100% do that if I were Magneto. I would just have, you know, we have those, those friend, friends of ours who have the, the big full-size data cardboard standee that they keep their hats on. Oh, yeah. Or uh, our friends Allison and Shannon have that phrenology bust. You could keep your Magneto helmet on a phrenology bust. Right. But no, if I were Magneto, I would get like a full-size standee of someone else or something else and just like keep my 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 big fancy dramatic cloak and my, my helmet on it and be really entertained every time I went to get dressed. That sounds pretty good. I feel like he might have a cardboard cutout of Namor. I mean, do you remember how he was checking out Namor's ass in that early Silver Age is- issue? Well, by that argument, he wouldn't have a cardboard cutout of Namor. He'd have a mannequin of Namor, or possibly an inflatable Namor, or a Namor body pillow. Do you think Namor body pillows exist? Do you think someone makes those? I think someone makes those, and I think Magneto has one, and I think that that is just straight-up canon. I I really can't fault him for that. Do you think they're waterproof? I mean, it's Namor. Well, anyway... Magneto's dramatic body pillow thoughts lead us into a flashback drawn beautifully by Jay Lee, whose stark, craggy style fits this perfectly. This is a flashback of Magneto burying his daughter Anya after he killed her killers with apparently the first use of his mutant power. Now, continuity's gone back and forth on whether this was the first time Magneto used his magnetic powers. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, Magneto's backstory has changed about as much as Wolverine's at this point. It has, yeah. In that moment, the moment he used his power to force one soldier to slay his comrades, the world lost one of its most valuable resources. It lost the heart and soul of Eric Lencher, and found in its place an entity known as Magneto. And that's kind of going to be the thesis statement of this issue. Uncanny X-Men number 304, the big dramatic return of Magneto to Earth, essentially posits that Magneto is and has always been a straight-up, irredeemable supervillain. A sympathetic one, yes, but a bad guy. This issue goes a long way to try to undo so much of what Claremont did having Magneto follow Xavier's dream for so long. And I think it's written well. I don't think it's a good story decision. So going back and rereading this now, because I, I the last time I had read this before we got to it in coverage was was several years ago. This feels like Magneto. Th- this this fatal attraction seems to me to be to Magneto, as Avengers versus Inhumans is to Emma Frost. I can see that, or maybe even as X Men Deadly Genesis is to Professor Xavier. Hard disagree on that one, actually, because that 
I think Deadly Genesis is more consistent with Xavier's decision-making process and characterization. I, I, I know that there are people for whom it was an absolute event, event horizon. And for me, it felt, again, really characterization consistent in, in terms of him doing awful stuff because he's, you know, got the hubris to trust in his own judgment and he thinks he's doing it right and doesn't quite ever, you know, see the people he's, whose lives he's, he's moving around as human in the ways that he is. Like, that, that's, that's how he had been consistently portrayed at that point. Yeah, but, but not with somebody like Cyclops. The fact that Xavier keeps the existence of another brother from Cyclops to sort of cover his own ass, that's where I just totally don't buy it. So I think this is an area mm. where, I know we agree on most X-Men things, but I think this is an area where we don't. At least we both agree that Magneto's kind of getting some hardcore character assassination here, though, right? Yeah, so where I am with this is that all of the things that he actually does in this, all of his big moves feel like they could be in character, but his rationalizations for them aren't. And that's 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 why I specifically compared it to Avengers versus Inhumans, because I, I feel that way a lot about Emma Frost in that. Okay, that's a really good parallel, and that makes sense. And we'll get to more of that, how Magneto's affect, how Magneto's seeming, how his interaction with other characters is really just weird in this issue. Well, in the meantime, the perhaps other side of the metallic coin, Charles Xavier is... Staring at his reflection close in a mirror, looking like nothing so much as James Sunderland from the first scene of Silent Hill 2. Charles, I'm waiting for you in our special place. Oh, geez. Oh, that's dark, man. Uh, anyway, Lalandra, Xavier's confidant and lover, holographically appears to comfort him. I, I love her line here. It's, it's so, so, so dramatic. Your pain... Your devastation has reached across the galaxy to embrace my soul in a grip of ice. This is basically phone sex for them. It basically is. But no, this makes sense because the only freaking thing that can make an X-Men character pick up the goddamn phone or phone equivalent is intense angst. So I totally buy it. Well, and telling someone who can't help or be involved in any way and has no particular personal stake in the matter. Yeah... But Lalandra does her best to holographically comfort Xavier, which unfortunately isn't much. And after she disappears, he expositions at himself about how the mutant underground is depending on him, which is not a reference to the gifted. And in fact, the mutant underground is a very vague phrase, and I'm not sure exactly what, he, what it means. But there are three big screens that he looks at, because as we know in comic books, you have great big words on great big screens, ideally duplicated or triplicated. And those screens simply say, the Magneto Protocols. So, I find this interesting because there are also Xavier protocols, but the Xavier protocols are Charles Xavier's how I can how you can kill all of the X Men things, and the Magneto protocols are Xavier's or the World Government's how we can take down Magneto, and that inconsistent naming structure between those strikes me as something likely to cause pretty serious problems in times of massive crisis. Oh yeah, I agree. Let's get Cyclops in here with his color coded binders. He could fix this. Yeah, well, not his, his binders wouldn't be color-coded, though. Oh, good point. Uh, maybe they have different symbols on the tabs. I mean, I assume that they're incredibly well-organized, just not color-coded. Well, anyway, 
this is a great big event and big consequential things are going to happen. And there's one page I really want to highlight, which has a series of horizontal panels going all the way down the page, zooming out from right outside the X-Mansion all the way out into space. And this is a lot of narration, but I really enjoy the sense of scale and gravitas and importance it lends to this story, earned or not. A long time ago, one might argue a lifetime ago, this Westchester estate near the hamlet of Salem Center lived up to its name as Professor Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. A relatively normal estate on a nondescript country road, it has served as a training ground for young people possessed of mutagenic abilities. But more than that, it was their home, a safe haven from the world around them. Then, a funny thing happened. The world started to change. Their enemies, no longer content to simply dominate mutants, opted instead to kill. Their adversaries, who once thought it was enough to tolerate humanity, decided it was necessary, even desirable, to destroy it instead. Where once a threat to world genetic harmony came from identifiable sources, now the danger is everywhere. Today, for example, the greatest threat to face every living being on the planet Earth does not currently reside on this planet at all. And I really like this narration. I really like that this is the 1990s saying, hey, things are different now. Things are uglier. Things are bigger and more terrifying. And so the consequences of the events that you're going to see are going to also be darker and bigger and more terrifying. Like, again, I don't know if it's fully earned, but I really appreciate that it's just it's setting the stage so well here. That would carry more water were the exact same descriptions not perfectly applicable to the comics of 10 years earlier. It's true, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because here in the early 90s, we have people who grew up with the X-Men of the 80s now writing things. You're going to see those cycles. But, you know, the fact is the 90s were more extreme. It's a ridiculous word used often ridiculously. But, you know, the stuff that happens in the second issue we'll be talking about today, that stuff's a legitimately big deal. Okay, remember when Dark Phoenix ate a sun and also a random anthropologist underground built an entire legion of killer robots in order to take down mutants because he was so racist and Professor Xavier had to fake his own death for multiple years to fight an alien invasion? I get it. There have been big eventful things many, many times before. Absolutely. But well, there's specifically been big planet span, you know, planet spanning threats from space things. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I think the darkness is is sold very well with this whole thing. I mean, obviously, if you're going to compare something to the Dark Phoenix saga, like nothing's ever going to compare favorably. But aside from that. Anyway, at the mansion, there's another set of concerns in play, and this is something that feels kind of different from previous stuff, because the X-Men are mourning a loss, and it's not someone who's been lost in battle. It is Ileana Rasputin, who was a six-year-old, or not six-year-old, but she was very, very young, and died of the legacy virus. And Storm and Kitty Pride, old friends who haven't seen each other very much in recent years, as Storm has been apparently dead but not really, and Kitty's been off in England having silly, silly adventures— they get a chance to hang out, and Storm takes Kitty into the sky, and Kitty talks about how they, she wishes they could just be normal, 
Storm, though, she finds meaning in all this suffering. But I love that they're having this, this friendly, heartfelt debate. The last time they flew in the sky together was after Storm went punk and Kitty freaked out because she was a dumb little teenager. And to see them both having grown like this is so wonderful. Yeah, that was, God, that was back at Wolverine's abortive wedding. Thereabouts, or something like that. It was, it was right around then. And now, yeah, Kitty is, is mourning. But their conversation is cut short by the smell of Colossus of Piotr burning all of his paintings. I can only assume that burning paint smells like sadness. I imagine it depends on the paint. Oh, okay. Well, I'd imagine he's only been painting in sadness colors. Well, he's painting on canvas, so he's probably using oil or, or um, acrylic. Okay. Well, I'm no, I'm no art scientist, but I'm just going to say it smells like sadness. And this is fucking dark. Now, we saw Colossus basically not even react at all to the news that Ilyana had died in the last issue of Uncanny. He just silently walked off. And so to see him dispassionately still stuck in his metal form, because remember, that's been the case since he fought the Executioner, dispassionately burning all of these pictures, including one of Ilyana in her teenage form, the Ilyana we knew from New Mutants. And he, he's just, just destroying all of the physical artifacts of his memories of the people he cares about. It's fucking rough. Kitty asks him what the hell he's doing, and he says he's getting on with his life. How? By physically destroying your past? By trying to erase that part of you that can still create? That can capture hearts and souls on a canvas? Do you really believe it's that easy? No. Katya, I do not believe anything is easy anymore. But if you feel that strongly about this work, take it. If I feel that strongly? What about you, Peter? You've barely spoken a word since Liana died. What are you feeling? Nothing. And she goes to hug him, crying, and he's just completely still, and after a moment she takes the painting, and runs off with it. Oh, God, it is fucking brutal. Like, we know what an emotional character Piotr Rasputin has always been, how big his heart has always been, and now that's just gone. It's either destroyed or locked away so deep that it's not even remotely visible, and God, I feel for Kitty so much here, as much as I feel for Piotr so much. So, yeah, I love those three panels at the bottom of the page where, where Kitty hugs him, he doesn't react, and she takes the painting and runs off. Like, they're just incredibly, incredibly good visual beats. I had trouble identifying who different artists were. Do you know which artist worked on this segment? I thought Smith. It could be, yeah. Some of the faces look very Smith. But again, his art looks different to me here, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. If, uh, listeners, if, if you happen to know the answer to that question, we would, we would love to know. Well, at a chapel near the mansion grounds, Storm delivers Ilyana's eulogy about both her good and her bad. And I really appreciate that Storm doesn't just try to kind of clean up and whitewash who Ilyana was. Well, and doesn't act like she's just eulogizing, you know, the little kid because they've also, although they had kind of already lost the teenage Ilyana before, this is irrevocable in ways that that might not have been. Frightened by the darkness which had, for a time, gripped her soul, she was brave enough to stoke the embers of light that smoldered in her heart. 
awaiting against great odds to blaze bright once more. And blaze it did, my fellow X-Men. So, speaking of fellow X-Men, let's talk about who is and isn't at this funeral, because it's an odd bunch. It is. And okay, some of them make sense. Like, Psylocke and Revanche are the two X-Men who aren't there. And okay, I mean, I'm not even sure that either of them ever met Ilyana more than briefly. I mean, I guess there was those early Alan Davis annuals. Was Ilyana even on the team at that point? I don't know. But that's fine. You know, the Betsys aren't terribly emotional. But from X-Factor, all of the members are there except for one. Wolfsbane, who was the one who was really close to Ilyana and was on a team with her. You know, Wolfsbane, a major part of whose character journey was coming to accept that someone with evil traffickers could be a good person. Wolfsbane, who almost sacrificed her life to save the young, innocent Ilyana that she had finally come to believe existed somewhere inside the older, more wicked Ilyana. Wolfsbane, who probably should be at this funeral more than, like, anybody else except for maybe Kitty fucking Pride. A lot of feelings there. See, the person whose absence, the, the other character whose absence really struck me is ironically a character who will eventually be at the funeral, but is, is Magneto. Yeah, and well, well, we'll definitely get to that. But I can see they all think he's dead, so they're probably not going to invite him. And even though X-Force is there, maybe they were too busy mourning to let the X-Men know that Magneto was around. I don't know. Yeah, the the other new mutant who's who the other new mutants who are missing um, are Mirage, who's currently in Asgard, and Karma, whom Exodus had said previously was unreachable, so is presumably off doing something else and wasn't reachable by the X Men either, and also Magma, who should theoretically be reachable in Nova Roma, but at the same time, I I, I could see the new mutants or some of the new mutants basically being like, yeah, we already really said goodbye to the Ileana we knew. And it's a very, very long trip. Well, and also remember the last time anybody went to say hi to Magma was to tell her about some different friends who got killed. Like maybe they just don't want to, you know, set that hardcore of a precedent. And so what, just not tell her? That's terrible. I'm not saying it's a good decision. I'm just seeing, I can kind of see where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, Man, the the whole the whole scene is kind of odd, and it it does have that peculiar feel of a funeral where you have people who are really close to someone, people who knew someone and feel they should be there, and people who are there either out of obligation to a group or because they're connected to someone else connected to the person. Exactly, like Shatterstar and Feral are there, for instance. Um, we are also missing Cable, fair enough, he's in like many pieces right now. Siren, Warpath, I feel like Warpath would have been there, the Hellions and the New Mutants hung out a lot. I mean, they overlapped briefly. I, I could see him saying, you, you know, being on the fence and being like, well, but we weren't particularly close, so it feels a little bit weird to go there, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and then we're also missing Rachel Summers, huh, and Micromax, and Kylan. I don't know that Micromax or Kylan would have ever met her or had any direct connection to her. I'm just saying, Feral's there. But Feral is a lot geographically closer and on a team with people who were coming directly from their teams rather than going early to be there while she was sick. Well, I suppose. Anyway, basically, I'm okay with all of it except the Wolfsbane part. That just makes me sad. What also makes me sad is Professor Xavier talking to Colossus. And Xavier tries to comfort Colossus, who, understandably, is really damn done with it. 
On nothing more than your word, I left my family, my life, and didn't look back. I thrilled to those words, Professor. They made me part of a larger whole. Never once did I falter, did I question the validity, the cost of your dream. No, God Spoten Xavier, I did not fail you. You, you and your dream failed me. Worse, I failed Ilyana. And for that, I will never forgive you. Should have stayed the proletarian, buddy. For a lot of reasons. And this delightfully awkward moment is when Magneto appears at the funeral, surrounded by energy spread-eagled in the sky, ranting about how everybody has to stop trying to protect humans and how he didn't die and how every other faction sucks. This is so inappropriate. This is like the asshole slightly distant relative. Well, not slightly distant relative in this case. Maybe the asshole close relative, but who everyone else is estranged from, who shows up super drunk and, like, knocks over the coffin. He's, yeah, he's just in the sky. He's in, like, flasher bat pose. Which is, I, I, I can't remember whether I've talked about this on the show, but basically, bats, when, when they are doing anything that involves their bodies being visible, look like flashers because of how their wings are. They do. And they also generally look tremendously pleased for themse- with themselves. And Miles and I decided years and years ago that any time that, that a bat is, is flashing the world, it is also basically just cheerfully going, Behold! And so we, we've been calling this, you know, he's doing the behold thing, which for us is shorthand of... of Yeah, that. Mm -hmm. Magneto here isn't really happy about much, though. And, you know, the thing is, this is a missed opportunity because Magneto and Ilyana were very, very close. Magneto was closer to Ilyana than he was to any of the other New Mutants. I mean, he was pissed at her like 90% of the time, but when they bonded, they really bonded. And even beyond that, Magneto's whole thing ostensibly is caring about mutants and mutant lives and deaths and he doesn't even bring up the fact that he's at Ileana's funeral he just shows up and is like so thank you all for coming out here to hear my rant yeah i mean there is some lip service paid about how like the reason he wants to go be an isolationist and get away from humanity is you know because tragic things happen to mutant children but it doesn't really make any sense and it's basically just him ranting like he's silver age magneto again at the fucking funeral of a little girl who he was really close to back in the day now rumor has it that the writers during this era on this crossover were initially writing um, Magneto more consistent with previous versions and, and editorial kept on being like, no, you need to make him more evil. You need to make him more evil. You need to make him more evil. And, you know, I get it. It's the 30th anniversary of the first issue of X-Men, which was the first appearance of Magneto, where he was very much a Silver Age villain, but, like, no. And the most important way to celebrate an anniversary, as we all know, is to demonstrate how little you've learned in the ensuing time. What? <laughs> well... The Acolytes decide that, hey, showing up to crash a funeral is a great plan, and they appear too, led by Exodus, and see that, holy shit, their messiah is, in fact, still alive. Now, Magneto says hi to his Acolytes. He's frozen all the X-Men in place using the iron in their blood at this point, because sure, why not? I have questions and concerns about that. Well, he does mention that when he went through the atmosphere and almost died, that his powers got super awesome, so there you go. Um, we'll get back to this, listeners. Not Possibly not this episode, but there's going to be a whole of the Science of Fatal Attraction special happening later. 
Well, Magneto says hi to specifically Senyaka. Maybe Magneto had his cool action figure too. I don't know. And Quicksilver's really pissed saying, hey, that was the guy who was one of the central perpetrators of this slaughter of innocent humans in a goddamn hospice. And so Magneto wraps Senyaka up in his own whip and bursts him like a grape, which apparently doesn't kill him because he shows up in a cable issue later. But here's the thing. Magneto didn't kill Senyaka because Senyaka slaughtered innocent, helpless humans. Magneto specifically says that he totally would have given the Acolytes his blessing to brutally slaughter innocent humans in a fucking hospice. It's just that he kills Senyaka because Senyaka didn't wait around for Magneto to be resurrected to give Senyaka permission to slaughter humans. This, do you remember a couple episodes ago, ago when there was that guy that looked like Sigma who shot an alien baby corpse because he was just that evil? This seems like that level of excessively evil. And God damn it, this is Magneto. No, Magneto is nuanced. He's fascinating. He does the wrong things for the right reason. And now he's killing somebody for slaughtering humans without him giving the okay to do so. Wait, but didn't Senyaka think that Magneto was dead at that point? Yeah, there are a lot of things to get mad at this issue about. I mean, a lot of things I love, but this right here just pisses me off, man. And Magneto, true to, to Silver Age Magneto, takes this opportunity to deliver another villain speech. Allow me to share what I have learned. Know you all. The time for games for choosing sides, for debating the alleged morality of our actions, for questioning my ultimate authority, has passed. From this day forth, all who do not stand with me, whether mutant or not, can be counted among my enemies. I refuse to ever again become an apologist, a nursemaid to the next generation of mutants foolish enough to opt to become your X-Men. Instead, I stand before you as the man I have always been, the future ruler of a world dominated by Homo Superior. So he decides what he's going to do at this point is just head up to Avalon, watch the world burn for now. Um... He also says that he's going to use Avalon to, to kill 10,000 humans for every one mutant killed by the Legacy Virus, which is a kind of baffling decision considering that the Legacy Virus was the product of mutant supremacists. And Magneto says something about how, no, 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 it, it just happened because uh, different mutants were fighting each other since humanity had created such a shitty world for those mutants. But goddamn, Magneto, you are smarter than this, Eric. That's a layer of rationalization where I feel like the next step is convincing him to go fight the sun. Yeah, pretty pretty much that. So um, the X-Men do manage to break free thanks to the fact that Bishop's power is always on. And they fight and it doesn't go too well because Colossus turns and he punches Bishop in the back of the head and knocks him out and says, you know what? I don't have anything keeping me here. Xavier's dream has failed me. Maybe if I'd joined you, Magneto, earlier, Ilyana would still be alive. Xavier, furious and betrayed at this point, manages to grab onto Magneto and forces him 
to lift them, to, to lift Xavier with him into the atmosphere, then makes Magneto use his power to fling himself into space while Xavier falls to Earth and is caught by Archangel. Xavier is weirdly durable. He is. I mean, most comic book characters are. But yeah, he does fall like, I mean, I don't know if he would burn up through re-entry. I, I don't know if he was uh, that high up, but youch. But um, yeah, so I think it's safe to say this was probably one of the worst funerals ever. I mean, memorable. Memorable, true. Honestly, the one thing that makes me a little happier about this is that the teenage Ilyana that we knew would find all of this fucking hilarious. Oh yeah, she would have been all over this. She would have. So yeah, Magneto has revealed himself to the X-Men. Colossus has defected, has left the X-Men to go join their, at this point, greatest foe. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K, and this is where the crossover really turns. This is where the X-Men take action in X-Men number 25, Dreams Fade. This is written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Mac Matt Ryan, and colored by Joe Rosas. The card on this one is Gambit, because, okay. Because he was very popular, and Wolverine was already on one issue, and Magneto was already on another. I think this card probably should have been Professor Xavier, but uh, he probably would yeah. have sold fewer books. Yeah. The quote, of course, remains very dramatic. The death of a dream. In this, the final battle. We've also got an anniversary dedication, which is to Stan and Jack, Roy and Neil, Len and Dave, Chris and John, to all those who have come before us and all those who will come in the next 30 years. Well, that's really nice. As we saw, Earth has engaged the Magneto Protocols, which turn out to be what appears to be a giant laser grid surrounding the Earth. It's actually, and I quote, a protective mesh of electromagnetic fire. What does that mean? Who the hell knows, but it's designed to passively protect the Earth from Magneto, um, who instead interprets it as an act of war. It's going to prevent him from effectively using his powers on Earth, anywhere within Earth's atmosphere, which he feels is unacceptable because it won't let him do enough recruitment. And we still have a Magneto who is greatly overreacting to anything humanity does, but I will say Nistieza at least immediately starts to walk back Magneto just being a, such a freaking banana loon and has Magneto talk about how you know he really used to think that humanity would elect leaders that could help them coexist with with mutants but clearly what's going on here is a sign that that will never happen like so we have a Magneto that's consistent with the last chapter but a Magneto who's so much more thoughtful and who's not just a pure you know who I am an evil villain who does evil for evil reasons behold <laughs> behold so Magneto takes care of this big, not a laser grid, by uh, disrupting the planet Earth's entire electromagnetic field, which is um, a really, really big deal. It's a giant global electromagnetic pulse, and it kills like a ton of people because it shuts down all electronics and power and everything across the world. Think about airplanes. Think about hospitals. Think about having played a video game for a long time and you haven't saved in a while. One of these things is not like the others. And that's airplanes because they fly. Hospitals and video games don't. Mm, flying hospitals. They'd be kind of cool. I bet S.H.I.E.L.D. has one. So, yeah, this is this is huge. And there's also a continuity error at this point because we get a little montage of different X-teams around the world and, and other teams having power failures. And one of them is Excalibur and Captain Britain is there. And Captain Britain should be lost in the time stream at this point. But 
I figured this one out. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's Farron and Captain Britain drag. Oh, yeah, Farron did create that Captain Britain illusion. Wait, no, but at this point, Farron is having a sadness stare off with Megan in a waterfall. And maybe the Captain Britain illusion just wandered off on its own. It's Excalibur. I'd buy that. Yeah, it, it seems within within the range of oddness that happens there. Mm-hmm. But this is where Magneto crosses a line, because we've seen Magneto kill a bunch of people before, um, I think most notably in Uncanny X-Men 150, where he sinks the submarine, the Leningrad, you know, since they're threatening him. That but, is not even close in scale to the degree of devastation he's unleashed here. Exactly. This is not only so many more people, probably thousands at the very least, but it's not people who are attacking him, who are threatening him. It's just random freaking people all around the world because at this point, and I think the issue does sell this, Magneto sees the entire human race as aggressors. There's one line that I don't think we quoted but is mentioned later on how that talks about how Magneto has seen his entire life up until the present day as a warning to humanity, which I really, really like. And I think that's it. He's basically said, you know what? I gave you guys so many chances and you've made your intentions clear. So fuck it. All of humanity is my enemy. All of humanity. I'm going to consider somebody who's trying to kill me and my people. Dubiously valid, but definitely understandable. And and this this issue opens with narration and or, or, or part, of, part of the story does. The scene does. And it opens with narration that's actually verbatim the same as the opening of X-Men 94. It begins with an ending and, perhaps, the breaking of a man's heart. This man's heart. The heart of Charles Xavier. And that scene in X-Men 94, of course, was when all of the original five, plus Havoc and Polaris, left the X-Men except for Cyclops. This was the first issue of X-Men after Giant Size. So if you're going to have callbacks in your 30th anniversary storyline, like this is a really cool way to do it. It really, really is. And Xavier has a plan for taking down Magneto, which he presents while facing away from his carefully arranged students, despite a caption explicitly stating that he's facing them, which bugs me disproportionately to its actual impact on anything. But yeah, he is going to shut down Magneto once and for all. And he's going to do this with a small, hand-picked group of X-Men. He's very deliberately not bringing the entire team. And the implication is that he's not doing it because it's pretty much a suicide mission. So he's got Gene, Wolverine, Gambit, Rogue, and Quicksilver. And he's planning to lead them himself in a fancy exoskeleton, which requires almost all of his psychic energy to use, which is why he has to have Gene there. This also bugs me because he has a chair that floats and basically is every bit as maneuverable, but doesn't effectively prevent him from using his powers. Mm -hmm. And also, why do you always, always bring Wolverine to fight the guy who controls metal? Why do you, why, why do you keep doing this? Well, he mentions that Wolverine and Gambit are there to use their guile and stealth, uh, which, I mean, okay, Wolverine stealth mainly usually involves like ripping people's organs out. Also, Magneto can sense metal. That's part of his thing. There is that. It's not a great plan. I guess it serves the goals of the story, but yeah. I do appreciate, though, that Xavier chooses to bring Quicksilver and Rogue not only because of their raw power, which they certainly both have in spades, but also because of their emotional connections to Magneto. Like, that makes sense, and I appreciate Nistiesa remembering that Rogue and Magneto have been really tight in the, in the past. He kits them out in, in spacesuits that are less like spacesuits and more like space chaps and harnesses. I think they look pretty cool. And he he 
his students all pretty much seem to think that this is a terrible plan, but they all kind of dubiously go along with it. And as they teleport up to Avalon, Beast, who's, who's left behind with Storm and Cyclops, uh, quotes what he claims is Prometheus Unbound, but is actually Prometheus Bound. By Aeschylus, yeah. And so I looked into this. Actually, one of the commenters at The Real Gentleman of Leisure, um, Timu, is a classicist. And... Um, brought up some stuff I never would have known because I'm not an Aeschylus scholar. But Beast is initially quoting uh, the personification of Strength, also known as Kratos, who if you're a gamer, you may be familiar with that name, talking to Hephaestus regarding Zeus's order for Hephaestus to bind Prometheus, who of course was the god that gave fire to humanity. He's going to get his liver eaten by a giant eagle every day. He totally is. But Beast, as Kratos says to Hephaestus, Come, why are you holding back? Why are you pitying in vain? Why is it that you do not hate a god whom the gods hate most of all? Why is it that you do not betray him since it was your honor he betrayed to men? To which Storm responds with Hephaestus' response. Our kinship has strange power. That and our life together. And I love this because it's basically beast as Xavier saying, hey, why aren't you cool with uh, taking out this horrible, horrible person? And Storm saying, well, because we have been friends at times and because, you know, he's not a bad person. And I get that. And I love that it's Storm saying this specifically because she and Magneto were so tight back in the day. They were the co-white king of the Hellfire Club, for crying out loud. I sort of assumed that rather than representing their own positions, they were basically externalizing Xavier's inner conflict. That could also work as well. And this isn't the last bit of Prometheus-bound quotations we'll see, and I love the way the second one calls back to the first, but we'll get to that. So, the X-Men beam up to Avalon, and they are incredibly lucky in that Colossus happens to be the one working the security cameras, and he decides not to mention their presence to his cohorts. Avalon, it turns out, is populated largely by Shiartek, which Xavier assumes that Magneto must have stolen while he was running the school, which is one of the things that bothers me the most about this, that that's what they jump to. Right, because that's the thing with Magneto. Like, if there was ever a time when you could say, yeah, this dude has good intentions, he's trying really hard, and there's no duplicity, it's when he was the headmaster of Xavier's. Yeah. Also, as we have seen from the Executioner, like, there's there's Shi'ar tech all the hell over the place. There totally is, seriously. So stuff's like 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 asteroid metal. So they're intercepted by Rusty and Skids, who are finally in their right minds. I mean, they're just here because it seems like the best bet for peace, but Xavier's got no time for this. He just telepathically knocks them out. And Jean's really pissed. She's like, dude, I know these kids. They're good kids. They've been brainwashed, and you just took over their mind? What the hell, Chuck? He was like, well, you know what? We, 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 we got shit to do. The shit they have to do, um, they P- Quicksilver runs off to um, compromise Avalon's controls via what appears to be a CD-ROM. And what this allows the X-Men to do is basically teleport out everyone except for Magneto and Colossus. And Xavier says that, that he's doing this specifically to avoid having to hurt any of the Acolytes. As he says, I blame none of them for this, though. For all we know, Magneto has... Has what, Charles? Offered them a better option than any of you could ever hope to? For that is all I have done. I have offered them hope and truth, opportunity and accomplishment. And I will continue to do so for all mutants whom I deem worthy. 
And I will not let your X-Men stop me again! I mean, the electromagnetic pulse was kind of petty, but yeah. Um, something I really like about Niseza and Cuber here is they really get Magneto's just raw exasperation across. Yeah, Magneto is a character who honestly, since he took over as headmaster for the Xavier School, has been defined largely by frustration. Now, the X-Men attack at this point, and... This is an example of an incredibly, incredibly rare occurrence in an X-Book. This is something you almost never see happen, and that is a telepath going in through the face. Magneto is wearing his helmet, and Jean and Xavier manage to get into his head regardless. Pietro knocks the helmet off a little bit later, but they very specifically get into his head while he's got the helmet on. They go in through the face. And so they start psychically assaulting his memories, like bringing up all of his guilt and his shame and his regret and, you know, basically fighting real dirty. And he even calls Xavier out on this, saying, like, I, I, you, I thought you were better than this. I thought that you thought you were better than this. And Xavier at this point, we know, Magneto may not know, that Xavier has pretty much decided at this point that he's going to stop Magneto at any, any cost, and which is probably going to mean having to kill him. At this point, Magneto's memories are starting to become unreliable. Jean claims that that means they're getting through to him, or, or Xavier and, and Jean think that means they're getting th through to him, which is weird. Also, Magneto can now use the iron in people's bloodstreams to alter their thoughts. That isn't, I, I, this is not my field, but is there not literally a blood-brain barrier? That's a thing. It's a real thing. Its layers are the Dura Mater, the Pia Mater, and the Arachnoid Mater, the Tough Mother, the Pious Mother, and the Spider Mother. I remember that from psychology because Spider Mother is a terrifying combination of words. Aw, spiders are actually really good mothers, Miles. Oh. Well, I really like my mom, but if I didn't have her, I wish I had a spider. Yeah. Anyway... Um, and I, I also checked, and I was thinking, well, maybe it's an iron balance issue, but actually anemia and iron overload have minimal, if any, mood-related symptoms, so this is just extra nonsense. That said, having, having Quicksilver here is, my is, is one of my favorite aspects of the issue, because he is definitely the X-attached character best positioned to confront Magneto on a lot of his bullshit. And he says so in his inimitable Pietro fashion. Look at me! Look at what I have become because of you! Unable to love freely, unable to trust willingly, afraid to truly live a life with my wife, my daughter! I am tired of running away from my problems! I am tired of running away from you! And Magneto is just not listening. He basically just says, yeah, but you rejected my offer, so you suck too, right? And decides that he is going to kill Pietro, at which point Wolverine, who even at the best of times, is not necessarily a master of clear thought and strategy, decides that the best thing to do is to launch himself at the master of magnetism. And he, he gravely wounds, um, he, he gives Magneto a very severe costume injury in an X shape. And that's really unfortunate because the implication is that Wolverine has basically just straight up gutted Magneto, which of course he also did in Claremont's final story in X-Men Volume 2, 1 through 3, but I guess maybe they thought that would be too violent to get through the comics code. And so, yeah, it just looks like Wolverine cut Magneto's costume and then Magneto's talking in like wavery, sputtery lines. But yes, the implication is Magneto is like super, super gravely injured and maybe dying. Okay, Magneto's costume is very important to him. So Magneto retaliates. And he retaliates in what is definitely the most memorable and defining scene of this entire crossover. Um, he rips out Wolverine's adamantium. And this is this is much more liquid 
than I had remembered and not exactly less violent, but I, I think I'd had that, that, um, that one shot fresh in my mind, the, the one with the, with Sienkiewicz's version of the adamantium working its way out. And this is, is at least less violent than that. But still, you really get just how much it demolishes Logan's body. Like, there are these liquid streams just coming out through his freaking pores of just silver metal. Like, Wolverine still has a skeleton under it. The adamantium was bonded to his skeleton. But imagine the damage that would do to you. Something that coated every bit of your bones just pushing out through whatever flesh was nearest. Like, this is a big deal. And it is gruesome, and it still pains me to look at. And Magneto, who whose gift I assume for dramatic dr- dramatic recitation has allowed him to key in on the play that be- was being quoted on Earth by the X Men who aren't here, um, decides to to quote Prometheus Bound, and this is this is a line I believe from from Kratos to Prometheus. Now play the insolent. Now, plunder the gods' privileges and give them to creatures of a day. What drop of your sufferings can mortals spare you? Then he eats Wolverine's liver. He doesn't eat Wolverine's liver. But I like this because basically what Kratos is saying in the play is, Hey, Prometheus, you're a god. Why would you give godly things to mortals who can't appreciate them? Why wouldn't you, you know, be loyal to your own godly people? Magneto is equating mutants to gods and humans to mortals, and that perfectly fits Magneto's philosophy at this point. Also, there's the fact that Prometheus, you know, was getting severely injured and healed very quickly, and Wolverine does that too. So I guess there's a thing, but I'm not sure if that's deliberate. Again, thanks very much to Timu from the Real Gentleman of Leisure uh, comments for pointing all this stuff out. And at this point, Xavier mind wipes Magneto. Completely. And Xavier's fury is palpable, and it's sad, but it's also sympathetic. Like, Xavier gets that so many lives could have been saved if he'd stopped Magneto before. Xavier gets that his dream of peaceful coexistence, his always giving Magneto a second chance, has done immense amounts of damage to the world, and so Xavier basically, at least for this moment, just abandons his dream and seemingly irrevocably, effectively kills Magneto. Ironically, this specific act is basically the moment of conception for Onslaught, who is going to destroy the universe. Yeah, that's another reason this scene is really sad, because now we have to deal with the Onslaught storyline. Yeah, that's rough. This kind of reminds me, actually, of, not directly, but indirectly, how one of the Joker's goals in Batman is to get Batman to kill the Joker, because he knows that then he'll have broken Batman, and... This is Magneto having broken Xavier's dream, which Magneto always stated was broken to begin with. So in a way, there's this little petty moralistic victory that Magneto gets as he's being mind-wiped. Um, Xavier did this to the Vanisher in, like, the third issue of X-Men. He didn't do this to the Vanisher. He erased some of the Vanisher's memories of what had happened and his memories of his own powers. And I'm not saying that's even remotely ethical because it's fucking terrible. But he's turned Magneto into a vegetable at this point. He has made his brain only capable of, like, keeping Magneto's body alive and nothing more than that. The X-Men's plan is to head home and bring Colossus with him, but Colossus decides that he is going to stay on Avalon and he is going to look after the vegetative Magneto. Um, Which, honestly, compared to his life for the last several years, seems like kind of a reprieve for him. But man, this closing narration... 
They leave this heaven a shattered place, leaving behind one of their own and perhaps a part of their innocence. And Pyotr Nikolovich Rasputin finds he has no tears to shed for them, for Magneto, Ilyana, or himself. And in the silence, one can almost hear the fading of a dream. So, yeah, it's a hell of a downer of an ending, but I think it's a good one. I actually really, really like this issue. You know what's wild to me about this? What's that? This is this is barely halfway through the crossover. Yeah, I know. We just hit chapter four of six. But in a way, this is the end of the meat of the crossover. Yeah, it's the end of the second act. Yeah, well, chapters five and six are largely denouement. And listeners, that's, that's the reason we haven't gone much into Wolverine having the adamantium ripped out of his skeleton. Like, that's a big deal. But chapter five is basically about the fallout from that. And it's a lovely issue. I'm excited about covering it. And I like that about this crossover. I like that it's not just climax, 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 okay, now it's done. I really like that it does have rising action, action, and falling action. It's kind of nicely structured as weirdly as it's structured. Yeah, this is the the other thing that this is directly going to lead into is the era when Wolverine swapped his nose for a custom font. Oh boy. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. So rumor has it actually that it was Peter David who at like a writer summit of some sort suggested Wolverine getting the metal ripped out of his skeleton as like a sarcastic joke, but apparently everybody thought it was a great idea and they loved it and they decided to do it. But I think one of the main reasons this happened now is that DC had just done the death of Superman. They'd just done Nightfall, where Batman's spine gets snapped and he becomes paralyzed and another guy covered in blades takes over. So in a way, I think this was Marvel going and saying, hey, really big, horrible things happening to characters, the status quo just being shattered, having Wolverine lose his most iconic thing at the height of his popularity, we can do it too. And honestly, more power to them for actually making such a major narrative change to the most financially successful character they had in that decade. Yeah, although, like, you know, Superman, who's going to come back to life, Wolverine will eventually get re-adamantiumed. Not for many years, though, and I respect Marvel for letting that breathe for a while. Mm, yeah. Well, people who we're glad breathe are our listeners. And, um, they've got questions. That was quite a segue there. Wasn't it? Matthew Murray asks on Twitter, What X-Men character is most likely to start a podcast, and what about? So, I think that Quentin Quire and Jubilee are each very likely to have a podcast that is basically just them having opinions and talking about stuff. That is, is one of those podcasts that exists primarily to be a vehicle for them. However, if we're talking about in the modern era, something that I always come back to that people tend to forget is that Cyclops used to be a, radio, a broadcast radio journalist, and his background is in journalism. And he's coming back to an Earth where the X-Men have disappeared and where things are largely and significantly altered, and I think there, there, is, there is definitely food for thought there. Oh, man, have it be like a, I don't know, radio-free utopia kind of thing or whatever. Have him speak yeah, to the mutants yeah. of the world. I would love that. That would be great. Oh, I am, I'm 100% in for that. That would be very cool. Oh, well, that's a better idea than mine. But I like my idea, too, which is Kid Apocalypse, Evan Sabiner. He is a noted enthusiast for sneakers. Like, you know, running shoes that totally came up in Dennis Hopeless's all-new X-Men run. Or at least it was implied when we talked to Dennis. I, I don't remember. But the point is, it's canon. And so 
It's both. It, it, yeah. it, Dennis talked about it and it, it comes up briefly in the run. Well, there you go. So I feel like Evan's extremely specialized knowledge and interests here and his ability to convey his own positivity and enthusiasm could make for a really great podcast. And like being obsessed with sneakers is totally a thing. I used to work with a guy who that was like what he was into in the world. And I feel like that's a podcast that I would listen to even if I have no interest in shoes other than having my feet not get hurt when I walk on things. I think Evan could really make it delightful and lovely. Ooh, I I thought of another answer too, which is that I bet I, I could absolutely see Brew having a podcast. Oh, it would be very academic and maybe like mm-hmm. you would zone out a little while listening to it, but his voice would just be so soothing, even though he's a weird little alien kid. He would, he would, he would, it would be a science podcast. He'd do interviews. He'd talk about neat stuff. I would listen to that. Yeah, it would be really nice. Asmos Fangirl asks on Twitter, in what formats or editions do you prefer to buy and read your comics? Floppies, paperbacks, hardcovers that collect two or three arcs, omnibuses, etc.? So I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I have unexpectedly over the last few years become a total digital comics convert. Uh, That is the least unexpected thing that I can think of, Miles. You are that that that's entirely in character for you. I mean, it kind of is, but I also just spent so much time with physical comics and just loved collecting them and just like looking at them and sorting them in different ways. I spent a lot of time doing that when I was a kid. Yeah, but you you liked having them, but given the option to read digitally, you pretty much did from the second that was available. Well, from the second I had, you know, screens that it worked well on and the the interface had been worked on. Um, But yeah, I really dig always having my entire library accessible as long as I have internet access and like a tablet or a computer or something, which given that I work IT is is most places. Um, I also really appreciate something that Marvel specifically does, which is to include digital codes in all of their single issue floppies. So I'm able to buy floppies at a store and support that store and also get an employee discount because I, you know, work for things from another world, just like a comics retailer in addition to Dark Horse. And uh, I, I can do that and I can still read digitally. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And I really wish more publishers would do that. I am in kind of the opposite boat. So I do still mostly work digitally for, you know, the reasons that, that Miles brought up. It's, it's shelf space, convenience, that kind of thing. But I vastly, vastly, vastly prefer to read it physically, especially when it's for something where I'm writing about the issues um, or, or podcasting about them and when I'm using them for research as well as just casual reading. I like being able to post-it note issues. I like having it physically in hand while I take digital notes. I like having access to the full context and the back matter, the ads. Um, I think those are important and relevant things. And I, I, it, it disappoints me when digital editions or collections don't have them. Um, the omnibuses were basically my perfect format, but they were really too, too expensive to be sustainable and they weren't a consistent enough publishing program. So yeah, I'm, I'm exactly in the opposite thing. And I think, I think a lot of that is just how we tend to annotate and work with information. I think that's a big part of it, yeah. I will say, though, like, from a reader-collector standpoint, for the issues that are I know I want to come back to, or especially for the comics I want to lend to people, I yeah. really like this sort of um, large trade paperback. So not omnibuses, omnibuy, whatever, because those are kind of unwieldy for me, at least. Well, the hardcover ones are about as long as they can reasonably be. And I think I think if you have – if you're in soft cover at that size – you're doing the wrong thing. And if you're making hardcover omnibuses that are thicker than that, they're they're useless. Yeah, well, what I really like are the ones that collect like a couple normal trades. So mm-hmm. um, the Grant Morrison run is in three big softcover trades and the Joss Whedon run is in two big softcover trades. I really like that. That's kind of my ideal collector's format. 
Mm, see, I think those are actually even a little bit lo- a, a little bit long for for soft cover comics. Huh, soft maybe. cover collections. Well, meanwhile, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and or characters. Claremont may be gone, but his angry narrator remains. Let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. It's not the first time, and it's unlikely to be the last that you find yourselves at odds, facing off against the future of a once-shared dream. Once, Teddy C., You and Sarah Collier were inseparable. Now, the only thing you share is a lingering suspicion of your mutual obsolescence, a fear that has led you to escalate your conflict to greater and greater heights, regardless of its terrible cost or narrative redundancy. And I I feel like there is no villain to whom this could go other than, of course, the one and only Magneto. Twice has Magneto, master of magnetism, invited the worthy to Avalon, and twice have I been largely denied. And yet, my second attempt did yield a bitter Russian ally. Perhaps interrupting existing gatherings is the secret to success in this brave new endeavor. Behold, timeshare meeting attendees. I, Magneto, shall freeze the iron in your blood as thoroughly as you were frozen in place by this obligatory PowerPoint presentation. Eric Engelhard, why spend a week a year in Cancun or Des Moines when you, a worthy designer of heroic simulacra, could spend your life in space with me? Wait, you want to stay here because the raffle still hasn't happened? So be it. Let this kindergarten class play seed the stage to Magneto. What are your simplistic songs and dances compared to the miracle of magnetism? Jeff Gardner. Leave your flower costume behind as you leave behind the doomed homo sapiens that populate this damned earth. No, you say, you've been practicing and refuse to leave before you sing about the seasons? So be it. I shall seek the worthy elsewhere. Perhaps at a bris. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, things get even more fatal and attractive as our coverage of Fatal Attractions continues. Magneto, despite having seemed to have blown up with Asteroid N... N. Asteroid N. That's actually Nagneto. He's the supervillain that tells you to clean up your room and asks you why you can't be more like your sister. For some reason, he can use that to control people's blood. That scans. Yeah. All right.